people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rothman. Thanks for joining me. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how creatively destructive government can get in this country in trying to put the business owner out of business. Over the last several weeks, we spent a lot of time talking about minimum wage and... The government, uh, President Obama, came out and wanted to raise the federal minimum wage to 1010. I don't know where the 10 cents came from, but I'm sure there's a reason. Uh, and many cities uh, took the lead and jumped it to 15. Seattle is, has kind of been the poster child for uh, increased minimum wages. And since May, they're down over 1,000 jobs inside the city. By the way, just side note, do you see what the Seattle City Council did this week? A $25 tax on every gun sold and two to five cents tax on every bullet sold. Five cents a bullet. Now, they say this will bring in three to five hundred thousand dollars, which they will use for education, safety, all that kind of garbage. I guarantee you. We'll talk about this again a year from now, but I guarantee you they will bring in virtually no money. I'll also guarantee you they've probably already spent the five hundred grand that they think they're going to get. But anyway, back to the the original issue of, of increasing the minimum wage. Los Angeles, New York, uh, all these cities are raising their minimum wage, and they're starting to feel. Uh, the consequences of that. More people out of work, fewer hours, businesses closing, that kind of stuff. Then, a week or so ago, uh, President Obama came out with another stroke of the pen and increased the uh, threshold for salaried workers to get overtime pay. In fact, he more than doubled the base salary. Used to be twenty three thousand and change. Now it's over fifty thousand. If you have a salaried employee that makes less than fifty thousand four hundred dollars, anything over forty hours a week, the employer has to pay time and a half. And once again, they project out. They say this will put so much more money into the pockets of the the workers. The employers are taking advantage of them. They're beating them up screwing them over on their hours, that kind of stuff. Well, already we're seeing, before it's even law, it's not even law yet, and we're starting to see companies uh, change their practices, change their hours, change their people to work around this so they don't have to pay overtime. I'm an employer. I have many employees. Um, I'm not interested in paying them overtime. If that's the rules and I have salaried people under 50000 which I do, 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to figure out how not to pay them overtime. I'm not going to increase my costs of doing business just to accommodate current regulations. Now, the latest thing, this is, I'd like to say it's beyond belief, but it's not. It's not. I, I can see the administration and the union leaders and uh, those kind of people getting together and figuring this out. But the National Labor Relations Board is uh, pushing uh, a piece of legislation through the court system. I mean, they're, they're, they're backing it through the courts that essentially says that if you are an employer and you hire a staffing agency to staff, to provide staff, for something, okay, a, a different division, uh, seasonal help, uh, temporary job, anything like that, any 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 temporary any any employee from a staffing company. If this gets through, that employee then will be considered a employee of a joint employer. Meaning that the employer who hires a staffing agency to provide that employee will now have to consider that staffing employee as a full employee, subject to all the benefits and subject to collective bargaining agreements. So if you have a division, if you have uh, a business um, and you hire a staffing agency to provide employees. Very popular thing nowadays because of all the hassle around having employees. And I know that hassle. It's very difficult to fire people. You got to document everything. You got to do all kinds of stuff as an employer. It's easier to hire a staffing agency and staffing agency companies have exploded in the last several years. There's major, major companies out there that get all their employees from a staffing company. They lease the employees. And uh, it's mainly going to affect hospitality, retail, manufacturing, construction, financial service providers, cleaning services, and security. Well, that's just about everything, isn't it? That's pretty much all the sectors. But if you hire people through a staffing agency, you will be required to essentially be a joint employer. That will make it very, very difficult to fire people, um, provide workman's comp on all that. It, it, it's just a nightmare. And what it's going to do is two things. If it goes through. It hasn't gone through yet, but if it goes through, do two things. One it will put staffing companies essentially out of business. So if you own a staffing company, now might be a good time to sell to somebody if you can. Um, the second thing it'll do will give unions uh, more power within multiple firms, firms that aren't necessarily unionized or too small, something like that. Um, it will give the unions an end. Now, where are the... Where, where the probably the largest unintended consequence of this would be would be franchisees. 
say you own a McDonald's. You franchise McDonald's from McDonald's Corp. And you pay them a franchise fee. But you own the company. You own that business. You own that McDonald's restaurant. And you set your own wages. You set your own hours. You have your own hiring and firing policies. You have your own employment policies, that kind of stuff. Uh, No longer. If this goes through, McDonald's will be classified as a joint employer. And at that point, the franchisee is essentially a very expensive uh, glorified manager. So it's it's not just for temporary staffing, although they're they're packaging it around that. It's also for franchisees. Now, what would happen? What would happen to McDonald's, to Burger King, to all these franchise companies? Franchisees would essentially want out. They'd want out of that deal. I know if I was a franchisee, which I am not. But I know if I was, I would want out. I would not want to be a glorified manager with all of my money into that franchise and at risk. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't recommend anybody else do that. But it essentially not only kill the temporary staffing company, it would greatly mess up the franchise franchisee model. And as you know, most fast food restaurants are, uh, or many of them, are franchises. So they're always trying to get something through to hurt the individual business owner. I don't know why the intellectuals, why these liberals are so afraid of a business owner, but they stay up nights thinking of ways to put us out of business. And they're very, very good at it. Coming up next, I want to talk about emails and not necessarily just the email story you think. There's some uh, some new information on emails out there I think you'll be uh, very interested in. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. For a while now, we've been hearing about emails. And I'm not going to talk about that because that story's been done to death. But I do want to talk about the continuing battle that's going on out there for your privacy. Now, recently I read an article by Veronique de Rougie, one of my favorites, uh, writers. She was on, uh, wrote this at reason.com, but she's talking about the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Now, this is kind of interesting because the Electronic Communications Privacy Act was passed in 1986, 30 years ago. We didn't have email back then, uh, cell phones weren't uh, that prevalent. Uh, internet really wasn't that prevalent. Facebook didn't exist, that kind of stuff. But it's that law that's still in place today to protect our privacy. But what's happened is the ECPA considers 
store data that is more than 180 days old, essentially to be abandoned. And because of that, it forces service providers to hand over those files whenever law enforcement demands without the need of a warrant. So all those old emails that you have piled up somewhere, all the old pictures, uh, all that kind of stuff, if it's more than 180 days old, the government can get a hold of that at any time without a warrant, without you knowing, and uh, without any of the basic due process protections. Now, Congress is trying to change that, and they're trying to amend the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the ECPA, and uh, protect your data past 180 days. They're also uh, trying to uh, update it so that it covers everything, every piece of data we have. And uh, they're also uh, trying to change it on data stored abroad. So the, the, the... there is some positive fighting going on out there, but all the government agencies, different agencies, the SEC, the IRS, uh, EPA, if you can believe it. Uh, by the way, the EPA had an interesting week, didn't they? I'm not going to talk about that either. Everybody's is. But uh, um, they're trying to get their exemptions through the back door of this legislation so they can still get all your information without any warrants. Now, I'd be in favor of this. I'd be in favor of warrantless access if it applied to current and past politicians, not the rest of us. Was it any surprise this week, any surprise that... Secretary, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton turned over her hard drive to the FBI and the hard drive was wiped clean. Any surprise to you there? No surprise to me at all. If there would have been anything on it, they wouldn't have turned it over. So if you and I did that, um, we'd probably be sent to the electric chair. But politicians, pretty much above the law, on this kind of stuff but if we don't fight for our privacy you can sit there and say you know what go ahead and look at my emails i got nothing to hide really maybe you don't have anything to hide maybe it is just correspondence between you and your grandma you and your girlfriend boyfriend whatever but what's in the emails is totally irrelevant to privacy issues. This country was founded on private property, the rule of law regarding private property. And private property is everything you have. It's private. It's yours. Nobody in government should be able to seize your property without due process. Nobody anywhere should be able to demand to see everything about you without cause and warrants behind it. Latest thing out there is what they call administrative warrants. These are warrants issued by the police department, not a magistrate. These are not judicial warrants. A police officer does not have to go before a judge 
swear under oath, under penalty of perjury, that he has evidence or a reason and present that evidence to the judge to get a warrant. They can just do it themselves now. Yeah, we got a warrant. We printed one up before we came out here. Did a judge sign off? No. It's called an administrative warrant. One more piece of your liberty taken away. One more piece of your privacy taken away. Now, don't mean to paint a a dark cloud over this, but every day, every day, we are being attacked. And maybe we're being attacked with the best of intentions. Who can argue with the FBI going after a, a drug dealer or a potential terrorist or anything like that? But you know what? Liberty is a little bit messy. And we have to protect our rights, protect our privacy. And in doing that, we give up a little bit of security. Life is not secure. There's risk out there. And I forget the numbers exactly, but it's something like 11 or 13 times. You're 11 or 13 times more likely to be killed by a police officer in this country than you are by a terrorist. I'll take those odds. I'll take those odds rather than give up more of my liberty that members of my family, members of, members of your family, uh, many Americans over generations have fought and died for to protect that liberty. I will take the risk. I will take the responsibility of protecting myself and my family. To paraphrase, I will be a security of one <laughs> rather than just an economy of one. But uh, we got to keep up the fight. We got to keep up the knowledge. And we got to hold these people accountable. Law cannot be subjective, has to be objective. Coming up next, the next step in becoming serfs. I'll continue this story, and we'll see what the uh, presidential candidates are doing to keep us under serfdom. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, the basic concept of government is that we, the people, the population of a country, generally grant a small group of individuals the ability to establish and and, uh, maintain controls and laws over the entire country. The problem with this, the inherent flaw, is that if you give any government the power to control things, it's natural tendency, and invariably it will expand those controls, resulting in continued loss of freedom and, and liberty. Now, when we were young, we learned about the feudal system in the Middle Ages, about, about all the land being owned by the king and uh, or lord of of uh, the country and and the individuals, the citizens, essentially being serfs and tilling the ground, 
and 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 their their reward, their payment for tilling the ground or or uh, providing that labor is is a um, bare minimum amount so they could survive. All the king wanted the people to do was survive. And the lesson we were supposed to learn from this was we were we should be very grateful where we live that in a country free of tyranny and uh, as an adult we would only pay a uh, a small amount of tax to the government that that would be equal and fair throughout the country well that's the lesson we were taught the reality is that the actual feudal system um uh, yeah some land was owned by the nobles but some land was owned by common men and ordinary people farmed their own land uh, harvested the crops made money from it the noblemen not wanting to labor commit physical labor would parcel out their land to farmers in trade for a portion of the product of those uh, labors and, and they would do that at a, at a price and the standard price although it's not written anywhere i haven't been able to find it in writing anywhere but the standard price was 10 percent. they got the benefit of the labors one in 10 days and 10 percent fair tax now what the nobles did also was they would provide uh, protection. They would pay for security, pay for an army, not only protect the nobles' land, but to also protect the farmers' land as well. Now, the nobleman could charge whatever he wanted. wasn't locked into this 10%. But if that's the standard and a nobleman wanted 20%, uh, the farmer was free not to farm it. He'd go somewhere else, and the nobleman wouldn't get anything from the land. Now, if you and I were taxed at 10%, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to stop smiling. I don't know about you. But today's taxes are much, much different than that. Uh, we pay all kinds of tax, from property tax to income tax to sales tax, capital gains, inheritance uh, in Ohio here, we have a cat tax, which is kind of a value-added tax, and uh, excise taxes on tires, road taxes on gasoline, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're bombarded with tax, but the worst tax of all of this is inflation. Over the last hundred years, the value of the dollar has gone down 98%. 98%, a dollar essentially buys 2% of what it used to back in 1913. And I'm sure you remember the significance of 1913. That's when the Federal Reserve came into existence. Now, for probably the 100 years prior to the Federal Reserve coming into existence, barring the Civil War and, and a couple other major events in this country, Inflation was essentially zero. The hundred years prior to the Federal Reserve, the dollar devalued less than 4%. So 
So throughout that time, the cost of goods remained essentially the same. Today, not so much. Now, are there places in the world where serfdom is not on the agenda? Of course there is. Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Bahamas, British Virgin Islands. I mean, many countries out there have very little taxes, no property tax, no sales tax, no capital gain, no income tax. Now, how is this possible, and why do these countries exist? First of all, they're small, which is an advantage. Small country does not need a large government. And because they're small, and because of lack of all these taxes, there's a very high income level per capita. And I understand, I'm not advocating, I'm not trying to lay the groundwork to convince you to leave this country. Not at all. There's no place else in the world right now I would rather live than here. And I got a little bit more on on that in the next segment. But it does serve as a template, serve as a a laboratory, if you will, on how we can help our economy, how we can better the economy. The freer the market, the harder people work. The more of your money you can keep, the harder you will work. The more you will produce, the more you will be motivated to produce. Free markets keep jurisdictions on their toes because people can move and free markets make competition um, much more prevalent. Therefore, the investment into those areas are more friendly. Are there disadvantages to smaller, low-tax jurisdictions? Of course. Sometimes prices of goods are high. But low-tax jurisdictions tend to be naturally prosperous. Benjamin Franklin said, nothing can be certain except death in taxes. And he's correct. However, the level of tax will vary greatly between jurisdictions and between countries. We see it now. Politicians know this. I see advertisements for uh, New York State all the time. You want to open a business in New York State, They'll give you 10 years of tax breaks. So they know lower taxes promote industry, promote business. But on the flip side, Congress, the administration, not just this one, previous administrations did it too, want to get back to the serfdom uh, mentality, I think. Another... Symptom of that, another illustration of that, is presidential candidate hopeful Hillary Clinton came out and wants debt-free tuition at public colleges. It's called the New College Compact. And it's very interesting how she has put this together, how she has worded it. To quote her, we need to make a quality education affordable and available to everyone willing to work for it without saddling them with decades of debt. 
I want every parent to know that his or her child can get a degree or you can get one yourself. Now, this is another ploy. This is another way of putting you into servitude. Student debt is rising at over $3,000 a minute. Student debt has exploded in the last 10 years. In addition to free community college, which is part of her plan, free two years ago. By the way, her competitor, Bernie Sanders, Sanders wants all college to be free. Everybody goes to college, all of it being free. So you have to bury $1.3 trillion of student debt on the American taxpayer to make that work. But the student debt, in order to be debt-free, Mrs. Clinton comes out and says that she wants to set the payments based on income. Her program would cap payments at 10% of, you ready? You ready? Discretionary income. Now, what's discretionary income? That's income after you pay all your bills. So your food, your rent, your house payment, car payment, all of that is non-discretionary. Any money that's still owed on your student debt after 20 years goes to zero. It'll be forgiven. So you and I, the taxpayer, are going to pay all that. What's the incentive to pay off your debt before 20 years? If you can drag that out, it goes away. Politicians craft things very carefully. Words mean things, and they are very, very good wordsmiths. The fact that she said discretionary income is important. It's not income. It's not gross income. It's not net income. It's discretionary income. Now, how is she going to pay for this? Well, we don't know. It's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars, and it'll cost hundreds of billions of dollars more than what she says it'll cost. But, of course, she's going to take away tax deductions for the upper income tax filers. And we've all seen what their definition of upper income is. I think it's important to look at this. Don't get sucked into the serfdom. Up next, we've had a lot of talk about Greece being our precursor, that we will become Greece. Well, got a story coming up that I think I might agree with, uh, that we might become Greece in the future. And... Uh, might not be all bad. I'll take a look at that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Over the last couple of years... It seems like we've had story after story after story about Greece. And recently, the last couple months, the stories have been a little more intensive in the sense that Greece is essentially bankrupt and they needed bailouts and all that kind of stuff. And they had a deal and they don't have a deal and they have a deal and don't have a deal. And their stock market's in the sewer. They got capital controls on their banks. They had a bank holiday for a couple of weeks or so. Uh, It's just a economic train wreck there. Well, what's interesting 
Well, first, I mean, you know, and people use that saying we're going the same same direction that we're spending way more than than we're taking in, which we are. Um, We have a lot more debt than we should have, which we do. Oh, by the way, the debt still has not increased. 151, 152 days in a row now. So Obama's doing a heck of a job on the economy because the debt's not going up. Anyway, what's happening in Greece that I would agree with people that maybe America will follow, and that is they're coming up with alternative currencies. So people are paying for things with what they call a TEM, T-E-M. And TEM is a Greek acronym for Local Alternative Unit. And this illustrates several things. One, people will do what they have to do to flourish. They will do what they have to do to pay their bills and and feed their family. And two, it also illustrates what money really is. Money is just a medium of exchange. It's only valuable to the extent that somebody else is willing to take it for goods and services. So it's essentially, money is essentially, fiat money is essentially a very sophisticated, convenient barter system. Much easier to carry around a wad full of paper in your pocket than it is several hundred pounds of a commodity to trade. That's why money was created. That's why paper money was created. And we've talked in the past how that came about many, 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 many decades, many centuries ago. But it's interesting to see that people in Greece are doing what people do. And this is the lesson to people in charge, to governments. And go ahead, put all your, your stupid rules out there. People will do what they have to do to get by and survive. So they've come up with this alternative currency, and people are taking it for rent. They're taking it in exchange for food, taking it in exchange for labor and services. And it makes perfect sense. As long as everybody agrees to take this currency in exchange for an equivalent value of goods and or services, it works. It works. They don't need the euro. They're essentially creating their own currency without defaulting on the euro, without even leaving the euro, and without the government controlling everything. Now, can it go wrong? Of course it can. Of course it can. Depends on how it's put together, how much of this currency is out there, the communication around it, whether everybody knows what it is and how it will be used. But it's very important to look at this and see, hey, wait a minute. Here's an alternative that can spill over in many, many areas. Something that's been out of the news for a long time now is Bitcoin. Bitcoin was a digital currency. It was pegged to a value. People accepted that peg, and they took it in exchange for goods and services. The beauty of it is government can't really track it. 
and they don't really have much control over it. Long as you and I agree to an exchange, not much they can do about it. They can try to tax it. They can try to outlaw it. But they're not going to be very successful at doing that. So from that standpoint, is America going to follow Greece? Yeah, maybe. Maybe we already have. Maybe there's people and businesses out there that uh, already engaged in an informal barter, already engaged in an alternative currency. I think we're going to see more and more of this as we go forward. I think it's going to become more and more prevalent, not only in this country, but worldwide. People are sick of their value being taken away by a handful of bureaucrats destroying their business, destroying the ability to take care of their family, and they will find and adopt an alternative to that. So, very important. Now, on a lighter note, I wanted to share this with you in the the few minutes we have left. I had a gentleman in my office this week who's a uh, citizen of Israel. I won't tell you his position, certainly won't tell you his name, but I will tell you he's in a position to know what he's talking about. Charming man, had a lot of questions, and I asked him, what do the Israeli people think of Americans and America? And without hesitation, he said, we love you. We love America. We love what you stand for. We know what it means to be your friend and for you to be our friend. And we're very excited still to be associated with America. He did say, however, they're not too excited about our leadership. And I said, well, we're not either. But... He said, we know in Israel that America is the greatest country in the world, will continue to be the greatest country in the world, and that people who say that we are not the greatest country in the world is wishful thinking. They're hoping that if they say it loud enough and long enough, that it will become true. But we know different. And it was warming to hear that, especially from this man who knows what he's talking about. Thought I'd leave you on that note. We do have a great country. That being said, I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 